My name is Seth. I'm super glad that you are here because we are all about a better you and a better world. Uh, a lot of great stuff that's happening in and around this place. Uh, I'm excited for, for where I see the future and, and, and this, just, there's so much good, good stuff. So I hope that you guys are seeing that too. I hope that you're participating and picking up on all that. Um, so we begin a new series today called Undo. Last week you guys were here and you cried a bunch about a bunch of stuff and it was all sappy and soggy and snot was everywhere, so hopefully this week we're going to try to uh, not get hyper-emotional <laughs> and just talk about, like, what's going on in the church. We're, um, this whole series that we're doing, Jesus, the church, in the year 2019, we're essentially, for the next five weeks, going to be looking at the life and teachings of Jesus and, like, what he was talking about when he was talking about things related to the church and what he came to establish, and then looking at where are we at in the year 2019 in the modern American Christian church and say, like, how are we doing? How are we lining up? Are there things that, like, we need to adjust? Are there things we need to change? Is there some things that we essentially need to undo? Mm, yes, yes, yes. This will be a good series. I hope that you will be here for the next couple weeks, uh, and if you aren't able to be here, like, please go back and check it out and, and see, keep up with us, because this is going to be, like, progressive. It's going to build and build and build, and I think what you will see is um, it, it'll be super good for us as a, as a collection of people. Yeah, so um, church over the past few years, few decades maybe, even maybe your lifetime, has changed quite a bit. When I was growing up, my dad preached in a suit and tie. My mom wore a dress and heels. She dressed her kids, myself and my brother, up. We wore lots of, we had church outfits, so Christmas primarily, the gifts that we unwrapped were church outfits. We had church shoes that we had to keep clean or else you got in trouble, you know what I'm talking about? Um, there used to be these things, you may, be, you may remember way, way back, where we had these books and you would open them and then you would sing out of them. Yeah, church has changed, where, where's all the books gone? You know, uh, they, they used to um, have these things that people would play, like, or, they were called or, organs, or, or something like organs that people would play, and then you'd turn to page 17, and they, they would play the hymn, and then we would stand, and we would sing. Things have changed in a few years, right? We don't dress the same. We don't sing the same. We don't act the same. It's a bit more casual. I'm glad that some of you just managed to put, like, clothes on to get here this morning, you know, like... There's a different kind of atmosphere and a vibe. Uh, for me growing up, when I was in high school, you know, I grew up in the church, obviously. When I was in high school, uh, it was like the transition into like contemporary Christian music when that was like, the, like a, a thing, like a new thing. And so all the new songs, like uh, we had to like print onto like these vine, uh, clear uh, transparent transparencies, is that what they're called, transparency? And you had an overhead projector, you guys remember this stuff? And so you had to make sure that they were all in the right order, and then somebody had to move them at just the right time as you were singing, or else everything got way out of, stuff has changed over the past few years. Um, preachers, like, have crazy hair now, and wear tighter pants and stuff like, it's a weird, it's a weird sort of thing that the time that we live in. Church has changed. Those were the good old days, the good old days. Now, um, and the further back you go, the more you realize how much church has changed. The further back, the longer you've been in the church, the more changes that you have seen over the many uh, past few years. So what we're going to look at is like, there's been a lot of change. Some of it has been for the better. Some of it, you may say, has not been for the better. That's okay. But 
there's still some things, I think, I think primarily it's been for the good, but there's still some things that I think the church is holding on to that's kind of holding the church back. Here's, here's a note. There's still things that the church is holding on to that's holding the church back. There are still things that the church is holding on to that's holding the church back. If you've grown up in a, in a small, small church, I, I was in, um, in Charleston, South Carolina for a couple years, and it was a very small church, and they have things, and you may have heard this term before, called the sacred cows, right? The things that you're not allowed to touch or change or whatever in the, in the church. Um, so there's still things in the church that are, are sacred, that we are not allowed to talk about to touch because we're afraid of what will happen or we're good, somebody will get upset, someone will get their nose bent out of shape, whatever. There's still things that we're holding on to the church that's holding the church back. Now, how many of you maybe know somebody in your, there's somebody in your life, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a son, a daughter, who... Um, don't really buy into the whole church thing. Or maybe they don't have the same view of you as church uh, on God and church and the Bible and all this stuff. Like, and it's hard for you to understand because you're like, you have a particular understanding and picture of the church. Like you think of church and you think of community, you think of family, you think of faith, you think of this Jesus guy who seems to be pretty awesome, you think of the Bible. But they look at the church and they have this completely different picture and view of what it is. And it has this, it like resonates differently with them. And you struggle with, I just don't understand because like what's not to like about Jesus? What's not to like about these things? Like we get it, we see that. But they don't see it this way. You know, what I've found is that most people who have some sort of objective, uh, objection to church or the Bible or whatever, uh, very rarely does it have anything to do with Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. Like most people aren't anti-Jesus. Most people are, are actually okay with the teaching of Jesus. What they don't buy into is like us or like the institution of the church. And so sometimes it's difficult because we go, oh, I, I'm just not sure. I don't understand. Like what's, what, what is there to reject about Jesus? Because Jesus essentially is like, if you look at the primary message of Jesus, it's one thing. It's love. Right? It's, broken, it's love broken into three things. It's love God, love, love people, love your neighbor, and then love your enemy. Like, what's not to like about that? Right? Like, you would think, like, maybe even if you didn't agree with, like, this whole Jesus as God thing, like, you can't deny that even if you separate that, like, I'm going to take the, divinity, the divine nature of Jesus away from. If you were just to follow the teachings of Jesus, it will lead to a better you and a better world. Again, because his primary teaching underneath everything else was love. So, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't? If you were to ask somebody, hey, hey, do you think the world would be a better place with more love in the world? My guess is they would say yes, right? Uh, you could take two people who are fundamentally uh, opposed to one another in almost all areas and aspects of life, and if you said, hey, would the world be a better place if there was more love in it? My guess is both people would say yes. Of course it would. Of course that's something we need. That would be a better thing for us. Uh, so even though they disagree, there's something uh, universally uh, as people that, that we can connect with in the idea of the world be a better, pla better place with love. When you look at the teachings of Jesus, Jesus is truth. God is truth. Jesus is God's truth. And so everything that he teaches is this like deep sort of truth. It's a truth that like it, it, it is, lies at the foundation of like everything else. Like if it's truth, it's of, like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's this deep sort of truth to this whole thing. And in fact, when people are opposed to things of, 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 of the church, again, I don't think it's because of Jesus. I, I don't think it's because of Jesus. In fact, most people would actually probably align more with Jesus than they're aware of. I was talking with a girl the other day, a girl, a young lady, a woman, she's my age, she's older, I don't, I don't know, 
a female. I was talking with a, a lady, uh, and, and we were having this conversation, and um, she was telling me about some of her travels. It was really cool. She'd been to all these cool places, and she's, she's very much an anti, anti-church person, right? Okay, great. She's an awesome lady, anti-church, um, and she was telling me about some of these experiences that she had as she was traveling, and I was asking her questions about, like, tell me more about this, tell me more about this, and then she, what she began to describe essentially was, like, this very kind of spiritual moment that she had, and she's, I would say she's a spiritual person, you know, like whatever that means, and, but she would, she was talking about these spiritual moments she had, and then she was describing it in these particular ways, and I, I kind of like paused her in the middle of the story, and I said, well, you know what's interesting about what you said, right? Like, the thing that you said, actually, if you look in the Bible, which I know you won't because you don't like the Bible, you don't agree, you don't believe Jesus, whatever, Jesus actually said similar things. He said this, this, and this, which actually lines up with the exact same thing you just said. She was like, oh, Really? I'm like, yeah, believe it or not, right? But she has already developed this notion about how she doesn't like, won't be open to these particular teachings, this particular bio, this, because of her experience with Christians, with the church, and, and anything that's crossed her path that way, right? So the big question, that's our big question in the series, is why is it that so many people don't want to have anything to do with the church, why is it that you would not want to be connected with a group of people who are following this guy, or best we can, who are following a teacher whose primary message is love? Is there something we've missed? Like, what's, what is there to object to that? Because I think we would all agree that that's something that we could all use more of. So is there something we've missed? Have we gotten off target? Have we gotten off track? Is there something or some things that we need to undo? Now, uh, the, the series, what we're going to be discovering, hopefully, is that mi- most of the time, or the, the reason that so many people that don't want to have anything to do with church or with Christians is really not the result of how church has changed, of, of how we have progressed or how technology has changed. It, what people are, are, are anti or rejecting or pushing back on or not willing to be open to is not because of something new that's been added to the church. It's actually because of some old things that we should have left behind that have actually kind of made their way, drifted integrated itself into the church that probably should have never been there. So, when we look at the life and times of Jesus, when Jesus steps into the scene, uh, when he first gets onto the scene and starts his ministry and, and, is, and is going around teaching people about who he is and what's happening, there was this highly established religious system like, that was already in place, right? You have Judaism, you have the temple, you have this whole thing that we'll call the temple model, okay? And this is like part of the underlying conversation for the rest of the series, understanding the temple model. The temple model is not isolated and not uh, only limited to the Jewish people. The temple model is like kind of the basis of all ancient religion. And in fact, you actually see bits and pieces of this in, in, in many modern religions as well. But uh, the temple model has four key components. And when you understand this, you'll start to see it because the temple model is everywhere. And the better we understand the temple model, the better we can understand what Jesus was like kind of moving us away from, okay? So the temple model, there's four key components of this thing, okay? The temple model, there's always a sacred place. There's always a sacred text. There's always sacred men because it's always about the men. And then there's sincere followers, right? Devoted, devoted followers, people that are, are, are following this process. And think about it. This is like pretty true in what we see. And this is how most people, when they think about religion, this is how kind of the mindset seems to be. There's a sacred place. There's this holy ground that you go to. There's a, a temple, whatever it is, the place where we all gather. Uh, then you have the sacred text, normally in the sacred place. There's some sort of oracle, teaching, um, 
writing manuscripts, something that, that we're trying to follow. And then you have the sacred men, and, and it's, t- again, typically men that are going to be interpreting the sacred text in the sacred place and then telling everybody else, the sincere followers, what, what they believe. Here's how you should live out. And if you don't live out, there's going to be some sort of consequences by, because you're not living out the text in the way that we see fit, which means like, you know, eternal damnation and hell in, in, in a lot of cases. So the temple model is everywhere. You see this. Uh, I noticed this a few years ago. I was in Haiti, and I, was, uh, I lived in a village for like two weeks, which was wild, and did chores and ate stuff, and it was weird. Uh, but I was walking around the village one day with, with one of the kids, and he was explaining. We were talking. We were just kind of exploring, and, and I saw this particular area, and it looked weird and interesting. It looked kind of voodoo-y, if that's a word. And I asked the guy, I go, what is, what, what's this? He goes, well, that's the witch doctor's house. And I said, oh, the witch doctor's house. He goes, yeah, that's, you know, we, people in the village, we go there and, and um, you know, maybe we're seeking healing, maybe we're seeking blessing, whatever it is. We go there and he goes through some sort of ritual or something on our behalf. Uh, maybe he blesses or curses our enemies for us, whatever. Uh, and that's the way we operate. So, uh, that is this exact thing. You have these people in the village that go to the witch doctor's area where he performs the ceremony, where he does whatever witch doctors do. And there might not maybe necessarily be like a written text, but there's definitely a, a cultural context of this. Like, because what he says and how they understand things like impacts everybody else. And then you have the witch doctor himself who's actually performing the thing. Like this stuff is everywhere. If you look at the Middle East, you see this. You see uh, when you get into Israel and everything that's happening there, you have uh, the sacred places like the Dome of the Rock that people have been fighting over and having differences of opinion for a long time. This is considered to be this holy, uh, sacred place. You have sacred texts in the area like the Torah or the Quran, stuff like that. You have sacred men, the priests who work in these areas interpreting the sacred texts. And then you have the people that make their pilgrimages every year to come see and pray and do what they're going to do. This stuff is everywhere. Uh, there's a movie that came out recently called Smallfoot. If you're familiar with Smallfoot, if you got kids, then you are f- maybe familiar with Smallfoot. Smallfoot, by the way, is brilliant. It's a, it's a deeply profound cartoon, and, and I love it. And we were watching it the other day, and, and I, this stuff starts happening in these movies, and I start, like, talking to my kids in the movie. I'm like, do you guys see what's happening? Like, do you see what they're trying to do? They're questioning and asking this stuff. And, you know, like, there, there's a, uh, this movie was either written by somebody who's been in church and left the church or got hurt by the church. Or, there's some sort of religious context there that's just dripping with it's fascinating. And I ask my kids all these questions, and they're like, you mean the monsters? And I'm like, yeah, it's cool. Let's just watch the movie. I'll you know, write notes or something. But in the movie, in this movie, Smallfoot, Smallfoot, by the way, it's about yetis because they're the Bigfoots, but then they don't believe that Smallfoots exist, which is humans. It's, it's really funny. Interesting. So, but in, in the movie Smallfoot, you have uh, what's known as the stonekeeper. And the stonekeeper is the sacred man. He's kind of the leader of the village, and he keeps the stones. And the stones is where they write their truths of how they understand the world, which is essentially this idea of sacred text. And the stonekeeper interprets the stones and tells the people of the village what to believe and how to believe it. Like, there's a stone that says uh, smallfoots don't exist, but then one of the bigfoots discover a smallfoot, and then all of a sudden, you know, chaos ensues because all we're questioning the stones. But the stone keeper also has this cave in which he goes and like has all the truths and like oracles and stuff like that, right? This stuff is everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, it, the good news for us is like we're so, like we've advanced so much in our thinking and how we structure ourselves because, you know, like even today we're way different where people uh, come to a church to learn about a Bible that a guy preaches about from stage. Wait a second. <laughs> 
wait a second. Did I say it out loud? I didn't mean to say it out loud. It just, sometimes it slips out. Are we that different? Have we come that far? Like if Jesus was trying to do this new thing, how, have we really moved away from the temple model? Or are we like uh, maybe not that much different than other things? If you have people, if you have people that are given a position to do something, stand on a stage, stand behind a pulpit, stand at an altar, and interpret things and tell other people what to do, and when they don't do it again, there's some sort of consequence or punishment, then maybe you're not as far from the temple system as we might think. In fact, uh, here's your note. The temple model, it gives power. It gives power. It gives incredible power to sacred men in sacred places who interpret sacred text. The guy on the stage that's telling you this is what the Bible says at the church. This model gives incredible power to certain people. It's interesting. It's interesting. So what we're going to be doing and looking at in this series and talking about is even though there's this temple model and even though Jesus came to like maybe move us away from the temple model, like some of this temple model thinking has like trickled into what we now call the church. And the truth is, it's not supposed to be this way. Truth is, it's not supposed to be this way. Here's why. Here's why. Here's, your, here's another note. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. Jesus came to do this entirely new thing. He's doing this new thing. And if you, look at the, if you think about those four components, the sacred place, sacred text, sacred men, sincere followers, um, like... Jesus was like, is undoing all that. He's like, uh, there won't, there's not going to be like this sacred space because now it's not going to be this temple, this building, this thing. It's going to be like the people. It's going to be the followers of Jesus. Like you are now the sacred thing. Jesus taught that, that uh, there, there would be no sacred men because you don't need the high priest to get to God anymore because this guy, Jesus, came to do this thing so that you can now interact with him directly. Jesus taught that the sacred text, the Torah, the Old Testament, would essentially be fulfilled in him, right? So this whole thing that Jesus is doing, it was never intended to be like the temple version 2.0 or like the next style of it, the next iteration of the temple. It was something entirely new. It was something that the people had never seen, experienced, been a part of ever before. In fact, Jesus predicted a new movement. Jesus predicted a new movement. Jesus himself predicted a new movement. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, we looked at this passage last week. We used it a little bit differently, but the story is Jesus is asking the disciples, who do, you say, who do people say that I am? And they're responding. He asked Peter directly, who do you say I am? Peter says, well, you are the son of God, you know, you're the Messiah, the son of God. And then, and then he says this. This is Jesus talking to Peter. I tell you that you, Peter, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, last week we talked about the rock component, right? Like this, this foundation that Peter would be, and talked about failure and all this stuff. But this week I want to look at this word right here. I will build my church. This word church should have never been put in the Bible. This word church is, 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 should have never made it into our English version. The word that's actually here in the Greek text is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia uh, means gathering and assembly means gathering and assembly. And so what happened is, is that we, in all of our wisdom and knowledge, we take this word and we made it into something that it was never intended to be. There was a guy by the name of um, William Tyndale. He was the first guy to like begin to put, um, like uh, translate the, the Bible into like an English version that we can understand. Actually, go back to that passage. 
Uh, go back a, a slide, please. Um, so if, by the way, if Jesus is trying to get rid of the temple model, there is no sacred spaces, then when you, all of a sudden, when you put this word back in here, when you think about how we normally understand what is church, then this is no different, right? And on this rock, I will, and on this rock, I will build my church because immediately our brains go to a particular thing. And I know like you may have this super Christian ability to go, oh, well, actually, Seth, the church is people. Yes, absolutely, it is. But typically when we see church, like it becomes this like place that we go. So William Tyndall, he had the like uh, nerve to translate it like as a translation rather than interpretation. And so he says, uh, he uses the word ecclesia, which means congregation, which means assembly. Well, when he translated this, it was bad news for William Tyndale because essentially it was like the 1500s and the Roman Catholic Church is all-knowing and all-being and all-powerful. Well, the Roman Catholic Church has used this verse, and on this rock I will build my church, to give themselves power and authority, to say we are the final and all be all. Well, what happens when you begin to undermine the Catholic Church? You get into some trouble. And so what happened was because he did this and because essentially he is now an affront to what they believe and he is undermining the power of the church, they uh, tied him to a stake and strangled him and then burned him, right? Because, and he never got to finish translating the Bible. He never got to, to fully finish translating this thing. Now what happens is after William Tyndall is, is dealt with, um, men much smarter and wiser, apparently, they came along and they said, well, we still have to interpret this a particular way. And so what they did was they took this German word called Kirch, which means house of the Lord, and then they inserted that into our two New Testament version of the Bible. So where we get our word church is from the word Kirch, which is German for house of the Lord, which is why we think of church as a building rather than the people. When the original text, ecclesia, has to do with the congregation or the assembly. The word church should have never been in the English Bible. It's interesting. So Jesus predicts that he's doing this whole new thing. There's not going to be a sacred space because you are the people, are the thing that he's working through and in. Oh, wait a second, Seth. What are we supposed to do with that? Like I thought Jesus is trying to move them away from the temple model, model thinking. He's trying to move them into this understanding that, that they will be his group, that he, they will be his followers, that you will be his followers. He will go with you wherever you go. And then what we did essentially is we went, no, 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 that's too much. That's too, we don't, can't, we can't comprehend that. And so we, like a dog returning to his vomit, decided we needed a physical location. So we called it the church. So of this new movement that Jesus predicts, there's kind of four key components to this whole thing, okay? Four components to the new movement that Jesus is doing. And I want to go through these. Okay, so first is this. Jesus instituted a new covenant. He instituted a new covenant, a covenant is agreement and arrangement. Uh, the, in the old covenant, you had the priest who would have to go to God on behalf of the people who would offer the sacrifice so that God would be okay with them. But in this moment, in, in Jesus' teaching and ministry, Jesus says, no, 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 we're not going to do that anymore. In fact, we're going to do something entirely new. The old approach to God is over. Like God has now given us a way for all men to approach him directly, and it's in me. Watch what he says, Luke 22. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying... This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is the new covenant, right? This didn't really, they didn't really know what this meant yet, but they knew that they had an old contract, this old covenant with God, going all the way back to the Torah, going all the way back to Abraham, all the way back. They knew that this thing was in place. And so Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, we're going to revise this. 
Which, by the way, would be a pretty offensive thing in the, from the Jewish perspective. I mean, uh, how offended uh, do, do Christians get like when you challenge their thinking? When you challenge a Christian's thinking on God and the Bible and under, how they understand stuff and how they hold stuff, and how, people get really offended. It happens all the time. It's happened here a lot. People are still offended by the things I say. I'm like, I don't So in this situation, you picture the Jewish people and then this Jesus showing up to the scene and saying, no, everything that you thought you knew, we're, do, we're gonna do a little bit different. Of course, they're gonna be offended. You, they've had this particular covenant with God like forever and then Jesus steps into the scene and says, no, we're gonna take this whole thing in a different direction. It's no wonder they killed him. It's no wonder they killed him. I've seen how Christians treat people who don't agree with what they say. Yeah, I get it. I get it when you challenge, when you push back a little bit, when you push people outside of their own boxes. Yeah, it happens. All right, so he, not only does he give, uh, institute a new covenant, he gives new meaning to the sacred text. So if the first thing wasn't bad enough, by the way, this only gets worse. Like if you're looking from a Jewish perspective at the things Jesus was doing, like he only just keeps continuing to push the envelope. Check this out. If the new agreement wasn't bad enough, he takes this up further. Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is huge, right? He's saying to these people, I'm not getting rid of the law, but I'm fulfilling it. He's saying everything that you believe about the Torah, the Old Testament, the prophets, the thing that you've spent your life studying and committing to memory and like all this stuff, living out as an entirely people group, yeah, 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 that's all, that was really all about me. It was all about me. It was all pointing to me. I'm, I'm the one that's now taking that into myself. As ridiculous as it may seem, like imagine you've grown up in, 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 in church your whole life, and maybe you have, and like you know the Bible really good. You know it like back and forth. You know the New Testament especially. Like you're really into the New Testament. And imagine one day somebody shows up into the world and says, oh, all that stuff, yeah, it's cool, but that uh, was only for a little bit. Right? Like Christians would be losing their mind. Like, no, that's not, he's the Antichrist, obviously, right? Like, this is something that we've taught our kids, or we were taught by our parents, or we're taught by our grandparents. This, like, you can't change this. There's not change. This is what Jesus is doing. Of course, people are going to be offended. Jesus steps into the middle of it. He's like, no, no, we're going to do something else. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Would you allow somebody to convince you that there was something beyond the New Testament? My guess is you would fight to the death to prove it's not. Yeah, he's pushing these people to a whole new place. And if that's not enough, he actually takes us a step further. Jesus institutes a new movement defining ethic. I told you, it just keeps getting worse. He's pushing and pushing and pushing. A new movement defining ethic. <clears throat> We're going to talk about this for, you know, this will be in and out of the rest of the series. John 13, 34. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is a huge deal. You have to remember the disciples have been following Jesus. They've been watching him, how he treats people, how he interacts with people. He's feeding people. He's putting mud on the eyes of the blind people, healing them. He's touching lepers. He's doing all this stuff. And even when you get into the context of this passage, what's happening? This is like the meal, the last meal that he's going to have with his disciples before he's put to death. And what does he do in this moment? He takes off his outer robe and he comes and he sits at their feet and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. This isn't like a random act of kindness. This isn't holding the door and smiling and being polite to the people around you. This is like much, much, much deeper. Jesus does for them what they would not do for each other. 
This is a big deal. Watch what happens. It keeps going. Verse 35. <coughs> By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's your ability to love others as Christ has loved you that people will see him in you. And what did he do? He washed the feet of those around him. He became the servant. In this single act, what Jesus does here is he inverts this paradigm of power. Right? He, he takes, turns the whole thing upside down. He shows this group of guys who are to be his disciples. Anytime that you guys start to think too highly of yourselves, you should start washing feet. Anytime that you think that you are the end-all, be-all of the system, you should start washing feet. Anytime that you get a big head because you think you're the guy that's in charge because you're on stage and you're the one saying the things to the people, you should probably start <coughs> washing feet. Now, in our, in our culture, in our world, we don't necessarily buy into that. We like the idea of a servant leader, but we don't believe in it. No, 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 a leader has to be the alpha male leading the charge, calling shots, big, big man on campus wearing the suits. Yeah, but Jesus took off his robe and he washed the feet. Maybe the next time, Jesus says, right? Like maybe, maybe when I'm gone and you start thinking too highly of yourselves, maybe you need to remember what I did for you. You do this and people will know exactly who you are. They will know that you are disciples, my disciples. You see, love essentially replaces the law-keeping. Self-sacrifice replaces animal sacrifice. The measure of your faith becomes how well do you love those who are difficult to love? How well do you love those who are different than you? Not how much do you pray and how much do you read your Bible and how often do you show up to church? This is like a full and complete departure from temple thinking. Jesus, I'm doing something entirely new. This is, this is like the next level that this is hard for them to comprehend because he's undoing so much of what their system what he's undoing the entirety of what their system was by the way speaking of finding it difficult to love people i came across this fascinating i don't know if i have time for this story but i came across this fascinating uh experience um over this weekend it was the fourth of july and i went to the geneva parade because that's what you do in geneva you go to the geneva parade and it's fun the kids get candy and rot teeth and whatever um but there was like a lot of like uh, especially because we're like, people are like gearing up for elections now. There was so much political heat. Like, oh, it was, t it was in the air. It was in the air because the, uh, the red-hatted Trump people, they came through the line and the parade and people are applauding and waving flags and all this stuff. And then the Democrats came by and they had a banner that said Seminole Democrats. And then it kind of got a little quiet. And I was like, well, this is weird. Like, you can feel the awkwardness. And then, like, the Libertarians came by and there was, like, this whole other change. And then, oh, and then somebody put up a sign at the front of the town that says Trump Town. And then somebody vandalized it and put over Trump so it just says Town. And then, oh man, then the Facebook group, <laughs> the Facebook Geneva group, it lit up because, you know, they put a picture of before and after, and then, you know, there's like 500 people on the chat, there's more than that, but, and there was like 600 comments, you know, like, it was heating up, and both sides were like flapping their jaws at each other, and you're wrong, and you're wrong, and you're wrong. And so what happens if you're a Christian and you're supposed to love those who are hard to love. You mean even the Democrats? Even the Republicans? Even the Libertarians? Even the Green Party? Even the Independent? We have to love? The thing that Jesus do, is doing is difficult. 
It moves beyond all other lines. This is not an easy thing. He's undoing everything that they had done and redoing it in this whole new way in a deeper, richer, more meaningful, hard to imagine and do sort of way. I mean, he even takes it beyond like a whole another level. Jesus gave, here's the last one, new meaning to Passover. New meaning to Passover. So this is like uh, one of the most sacred things in the Jewish consciousness. The Passover, the thing that they rest their identity on, that God sent Moses to rescue them and lead them through the desert and was with them and took them into the promised land. And now all of a sudden, they've been celebrating this, by the way, like 1,400 years. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, oh, hey, oh, here, here, let me just read the verse. Here's the verse, Luke 22, 19. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Eat the blood in remembrance of you. Jesus, the blood is about the Passover, which is about God rescuing and saving us. So you're saying that all of that is now done away with and we're now, that you are the embodiment of the thing that we are now supposed to celebrate? Like any good Jewish person should have got up and left the room because this is entirely arrogant, self-centered and like the crazy, imagine, imagine if you will. Let's say next week we show up and you're like, hey, that was an interesting sermon. I should go back and listen to the next one. You should. It's a great idea. So you show up and I go, you know what, guys? I've got a, I've got a whole new idea. I want to do something. I realize like, uh, that the thing that I do up here, I think, um, is, is affecting people in a positive way. And so I'm really proud of myself for that. And so what I want to do is um, instead of like this year when we get up to Christmas time and celebrating Christmas, I'd like to replace the Christ Mass with the Seth Mass. And so I want to celebrate Sethmas. And so uh, I think what we should really do is celebrate Sethmas. And since you're going to be celebrating me, you might as well celebrate my, celebrate my mother, Rhonda, because she's basically a saint anyways. And we can pray to her and, you know, Rhonda, Rhonda what is, what's the mother Mary? What's the words that they say in the Catholic Church to Mary? No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we replace that with my mom there, Rhonda. And then also my dad's here, so we might as well like celebrate him as well because if he's my father, you know, you'd be like, are you out of your mind? Is there something wrong with you? Like that doesn't make any sense. You might even get like deeply offended that I even, even said that that was a thing. Like you're going to celebrate Seth Smith instead of Christmas? Like that's not even a good parallel, Seth. That's, yeah, exactly, exactly. The Jews have been celebrating this feast for 1,400 years and then Jesus says, you're going to do that thing that you thought was about that thing, except now you're going to do it about me. Of course they killed him. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Jesus is doing this entirely new thing. It's this crazy shift. He changes the significance of Passover, right? And this is Jesus saying, look, this is like the, the, like the, the final thing on like, this isn't a continuation of what you already know. This is not temple version 2.0. This is something entirely different. This is unlike anything you have ever seen. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. No more sacred places. No more sacred texts. No more sacred men. I mean, Jesus takes all of the law, 613, 615, depending on who you ask, and he boils it down to one thing. This is love. Love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. This is something entirely new. In the early church, it gets off to a really good start, and people are coming to know Jesus, and, 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 and it's this fantastic thing. But then it doesn't take long for the old model, the temple model, the temple model thinking to work its way back into this whole new Jesus 
movement. And there are some things that Jesus came to tell us to leave behind that we should have left behind that we didn't leave behind. And in fact, it got blended into what we call modern Christianity. And then some of the traditions and the attitudes were tied that were tied to the old way got dragged back into this Jesus movement because it's really hard to do something new and different. It's always easy to go back to the familiar. And if you've had this many years of doing the model this particular way, it's going to be difficult to do anything else. But the good news is, I think for us, we're going to try to sort through some of this. We're going to try to figure some of this out. This may mean we're going to have to rethink and maybe undo some things, but we're going to do our best to more fully embrace the teachings and the life of Jesus and what he had in mind when he said he's doing something new. When he says, I've got this new thing, and on this rock I will build my assembly, I will build my congregation, I will build my people. We want to embrace that more. We want to step into that more fully. This isn't a step away from Jesus. This is a step away from the things that Jesus said to step away from. It's actually the more true way, the more true thing to pursue. But we're going to figure it out, which is awesome. Uh, And I hope that you will make plans to be here. What's really cool is that each and every Sunday is that we actually get to celebrate the new movement. We get to participate in the thing that he was talking about. When Jesus changes this whole like Passover meal, probably one of the most true things that we've maintained through this process is this meal, is this communion, this common union, this space where we stand, where we sit, where we have a meal in the presence of God, where we take the bread and we do this in remembrance of him, where we take the juice as his blood. 